Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of John, the Gospel of John. My name is Jonathan Chan, and so glad that you can join me today as we continue our journey through the Gospel of John with Chapter 7. Now, before we begin, customarily, we start off with a video clip. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. Uh, Ms. Vito, being an expert on general automotive knowledge, can you tell me what would the correct ignition timing be on a 1955 Bel Air Chevrolet with a 327 cubic inch engine and a full barrel carburetor? It's a bullshit question. Does that mean that you can't answer it? It's a bullshit question. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. Your Honor, I move to disqualify Ms. Vito as an expert witness. Can you answer the question? No, it is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Watch this. Because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55. The 327 didn't come out till 62. And it wasn't offered in the Bel Air with a four-barrel carb till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. Well, oh. She's acceptable, Your Honor. Credibility. Many of us who work or have a job or have a career or anything, many of us understand the value of credibility. In other words, putting weight behind the words we say and the actions we take. We hold credentials such as degrees, certifications, diplomas from various schools and institutions so that when we provide financial advice, as an example, or speak on the pulpit, diagnose a medical condition, provide consulting services, perform dentistry, perform an automotive repair, or manage a project, etc., etc., that through these credentials, whether they be CFA, CFP, CPA, PMP, which I have, MDIP, which I also have, PNG, MD, RN, we tell people that we have been given the seal of approval and whatever we say and do within our expertise is credible. However, in that movie scene uh, where Marissa Tomei was being questioned, she did not have any credentials that people expected of her. Her only credentials was that her father was a mechanic, her father's brothers was a mechanic, her brothers were mechanics, etc., etc. Yet, she spoke with authority when she responded to the lawyer's question. And then, when because she spoke with authority, she had credibility after she spoke, shocking everyone. What she said was absolutely correct and more so, but no one knew how she got that information. How did she know that stuff? She doesn't even look like a mechanic. She's a woman. Today, instead of Marissa Tomei, we see Jesus' credibility being questioned. And I'm wondering if we also sometimes question Jesus' credibility because of our expectations of him. Maybe because we put them in a box. Just like the people in the courtroom who put Marissa Tomei's character in a box. Let's begin. 
John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing, i.e. miracles. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Did I say openly? Openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its work are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. In the previous chapters, we saw that many of Jesus' disciples clicked the unsubscribe button on the YouTube, click unfollow Jesus on Facebook, unfollow Jesus on TikTok and Twitter. Because near the end of the chapter, of chapter 6, they left him because of Jesus's what they said was hard sayings. Now, Jesus's brothers wanted to salvage Jesus's credibility. Why? Well, it could be for themselves because, hey, they may have reaped some benefits and rewards being the brothers of this Jesus, right? But I also think that in their minds, regardless of the reason, in their minds that popularity and credibility are correlated, i.e. they go hand in hand. The more popular you are, the more credible you are. Look what they said. Show yourself and perform those miracles you do in front of the world at the biggest feast in the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. Everyone will be there, especially anyone who is anyone will be there. Do those miracles and Jesus, you'll get your subscribers back and your followers back. They'll start clicking follow and the notification button. Does this sound familiar to any of us? Doesn't this sound like one of Satan's tests on Jesus in the wilderness to see if Jesus would value popularity over doing God's will? Now, for those of you who are wondering, no, there is no temptation of Jesus in John. The temptation of Jesus only is told about in the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But like I said previously, as some of you have, have already come to realize in the previous talks, John assumes that all of us have read Mark. All right, what does Jesus say? Jesus responds to his brothers the same way as he responded to his mom, Mary, back in chapter 2, with, quote, my time has not yet come, end quote. Which we have seen and come to realize that this is what Jesus says when he says that his father's will is the thing for him to do and nothing else. That his purpose on this planet is to do his father's will and nothing else. Therefore, when Jesus says, my time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come, Jesus is basically saying, shut up. I have to do my father's will and it's not the time yet. Whereas the brothers could come and go as they please, Jesus knew that his time to die has not yet arrived. And knowing the Jews in Judea wanted to kill him, it's best not to make a public grant entrance, especially to the biggest party in the Jewish calendar, i.e. the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus' brothers did not know who Jesus was, 
and why he's here. They only know Jesus as being the, his, their brother, right? But he, they have no clue that Jesus is here to do his father's will and to, basically to save the world through his death on the cross. They didn't understand that Jesus had to do his father's will, was bound by his father's will, and that is to save the world. To actually die on the cross in shame and not be publicized and having the most followers and likes on YouTube or Facebook. All right, let's go on. So why did the Jews, namely the Pharisees and temple leaders, wanted to kill Jesus? There were two things that Jesus did in the previous chapters that got them riled up. And I will just have you refer back to the previous couple of sermons as talked about, talked about by Dan Forrest and also Sam Lim. They did a great job in explaining why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. But I'll summarize it here. Number one, Jesus claimed that he was one with God. One with God, i.e. he is the great I am in human form. He's God, Yahweh, in human form. That was a big one. And second, Jesus made many claims about himself, such as the giver of life, especially the giver of living waters. And also in the same breath, he's also claimed that he's Israel's judge, that he came to judge the disobedient. He came to basically judge the Jews who were disobedient and rebelled against God. Because it goes hand in hand in the Old Testament. The one who gives life, who is God, will also be the judge, who is God. So if Jesus says that I am the giver of life, the living waters, he's equating himself and saying that he is God. Not just equating, he is God. And so in the same breath, it's already implied that he is also the judge, the judge. And how did we see that? How did we see some evidence of Jesus playing out the role as judge? Well, he identified much of the Jews' sins, the deepest, darkest sins within them. He exposed their agendas like self-righteousness, greed, and pride. So if you just culminate all that, of course these Jews hate him. Now, when I say Jews, these are the Pharisees and the um, teachers of the law. Of course they hate him and want to kill him. How would you like it if someone exposed your darkest, deepest secrets? You would probably want to discredit them, right? And just say that their testimony is complete nonsense. A particular 45th president did just that with um, his former mistress who happened to be a porn star. He tried to discredit his accusers, right? Because they exposed his deepest, darkest secrets. That is why Jesus told his brothers, quote, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, end quote. That's the key point here. The Jews, i.e. the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, are after Jesus to kill him and discredit him because he has exposed the truth about them. Now, before we move on, John made a point in telling us that these next few scenes in chapter 7 and chapter 8, which we will go into next time, that these few scenes took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's quite important. Whenever John refers to something that's symbolic, we have to sit on it, dwell on it, and see why he mentioned it. 
So let's make a few notables about this feast before we move on. Feast of Tabernacles was the biggest feast in the Jewish calendar. It's a feast to remember God's provision during the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. So it's so if um, you remember, tabernacles are kind of like those tents that the Jews uh, were camping in and living in as they were wandering in the desert for 40 years. So that's hence that's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. God's gift of the law through Moses was also during this time on the in the wilderness. God's showing his presence in terms of the fire and the smoke. God revealing to Israel that he's the great I am in, uh, in Exodus when he gave out his commands. And God promising Israel that he will provide living waters, i.e. his spirit to them during those uh, wandering in the desert. We'll talk about light. Oh, wait, sorry. The feast had two main symbols during the high point of the celebration, water and light. We'll talk about light when we explore chapter 8. But for now, let's talk about water. For water, we've encountered water already in the previous chapters, right? Water in the Old Testament not only represented literal water, but God's living water that gives eternal life to his people. And this living water we've come to know is the Holy Spirit. This living water washes and cleanses God's people, i.e. from Ezekiel, who prophesied that this water will wash and cleanse God's people from their sin and provides eternal life and satisfaction that we came to know through Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well, i.e. Isaiah 55. This living water was a gift promised by God through the prophets in Isaiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration of great anticipation that one day God will fulfill his promise, send this gift of living water to his people. It's God who will be sending this living water to his people. So the Feast of Tabernacles included worship, included great expectation of this living water and light, and also with chance of acknowledging who God is, the great I am. Now, after we encountered Jesus' dialogue with the Samaritan woman, what would we come to realize? Well, one, Jesus is the giver of living water, i.e., he is the giver of the Holy Spirit. And two, at the end of the dialogue with the Samaritan woman, Jesus said he's the great I am, God. And so, when John mentions the Feast of Tabernacles, is it a coincidence that Jesus happens to be going into the Feast of Tabernacles a feast of great expectation and anticipation for God to provide living water, a great eager expectation and anticipation for light, and to acknowledge that God is the great I am. When everyone is celebrating of this great anticipation that Jesus enters into this feast, is this a coincidence? I don't think so. Let's move on. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now again, the Jews here is, are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? 
Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? Now, it's funny that they said this so many times and accused Jesus of being a demon. They do that again in chapter 8. We'll get to that next time. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. And that one work is, a lot of commentators say that's probably the work that he healed that uh, invalid at at the pool in the previous chapter. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. The Jews, again, i.e. Pharisees and teachers of the law, are questioning Jesus' credibility. Why? Well, Jesus uncovered the truth about them in the previous chapters, and he's ruffling their status. And so they quote, how on earth do you know all this stuff and speak with authority? Show me your CPR, i.e. the chartered professionals of rabbis. Jesus responds by saying his teaching is not his own, but from the one who sent him. And not only that, but in one breath, this one who sent Jesus is God. And only those who do the will of God will know whether Jesus is speaking on behalf of God or for himself. That's interesting, right? It's only when you do the will of God, then you know that Jesus is from God. Which implies that if the Jews were asking Jesus all these questions, it means that they don't know who Jesus is or where he's from, which means that by logic, they are not doing the will of God. Why are they not doing the will of God? Weren't they folks who were really diligent in following the law? Weren't they trying very hard to be obedient to the law? Why now does Jesus say that they are not following the will of God? Well, Jesus says, because they are seeking their own glory. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, i.e. the Jews, were so engrossed in seeking their own glory and propping up their self-righteousness, they neglected doing God's will. And hence, they have become so stubborn in accepting Jesus and his claims, so much so that they want to discredit him, and not only that, but to kill him. Jesus points to their own shortfalls when it comes to following the law that they pride themselves in doing. First, they wanted to kill Jesus, which the law forbids. And second, They neglected their very own tradition that making a person whole is even more necessary than performing circumcision. Now, for those of you who don't know, circumcision was a symbol of perfecting a part of a person's body. What Jesus is saying is that if there was an opportunity to perfect the entire body, as he did with the invalid over at that pool of Siloam in chapter 5, wouldn't their tradition, their law, allow it even more? And so Jesus is catching them of their hypocrisy. They are so concerned about just doing the nitpicky stuff in the law to make make themselves self-righteous and prop themselves up and look cool and good and high and mighty that they neglect to actually do the will of God, the very essence of why the law existed in the first place, to make people whole. Wait. In the video I showed you, the judge, the lawyer, and everyone else in that courtroom were so caught up in disqualifying Marissa Tomei because of her external appearance and lack of credentials 
that whatever she said initially, you know, like bullshit question or trick question, they just didn't get it. They even mocked her, right? No, you don't even know what you're talking about and just wrote her off. The Jews, they were doing the same thing with Jesus. They were so caught up in discrediting Jesus because Jesus exposed their deepest, darkest sins and agenda. They tried to find every reason to discredit Jesus. They used Jesus' appearance, right? They used Jesus' origin, saying that nothing good comes out of Galilee. They used Jesus' education. You don't have the CPR. Where's your credentials? And they just completely used, tried to find all these reasons and ignored Jesus' signs and what he's saying to them. Remember from the last time we talked about, um, in the previous talk with Nicodemus, and we wondered why are these Pharisees and these teachers of the law are completely missing it when they're so well-versed in the Old Testament? Whatever Jesus was doing, it was quite clear of who he was. Well, it's because they were caught up in seeking their own glory. So caught up that when they were exposed by Jesus of seeking their own glory, that they were more interested in finding every reason to discredit Jesus and try to kill him. Let's move on. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. It's interesting that he said the same thing in chapter 8, which we will be going into again, like I said, next time. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Yeah. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Because they rejected Jesus and wanted to kill him, because they had no desire to do God's will, Jesus, who is God and judge, declares his verdict on them, that God will no longer be among them. And God has abandoned them and removed their title as his children. That's what Jesus is saying where, when he says, you, where I go, you cannot come. Instead, God will choose a new people for himself. And they don't have to be a Jew or whatever race to become his children. Yes, they can even be Greeks so long as they believe in Jesus. So these unbelieving Jews who want to kill Jesus because of their rejection... God rejects them, and they will never find him or see him again. Which is ironic, right? Because where are we right now? We're in the Festival of Tabernacles, the celebration of the anticipation of God coming to his people and providing the living waters and light. Jesus, who is God, is now saying, when you're trying to find me, you'll never find me. I'm gone. I'm out of here. You're no longer God's people. That's quite ironic, isn't it? The feast, in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, where everybody is expecting God, the anticipation of expecting God to come. Here's God now in Jesus. And these very people who were hoping and anticipating rejects God because they were seeking their own glory. All right. Let's move on to verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The feast's final day where everyone was celebrating in anticipation of God giving his living water as promised by the prophets. The peak of their singing, the peak of the lighting of the candles, the peak of pouring of water, sacrifices and worship, the final day of the feast, the culmination of everything, the culmination of the hope, the the expectation, the hope of God will one day come and give them living water. What does Jesus do? In the peak of this party, Jesus stands up and says, God's gift that you were waiting for, it's here and happening now. If you come to me and believe, you will receive living waters and out of you will flow rivers of living water. I'm not doing it dramatic enough. You have to picture Jesus standing up in the middle of this of a chorus, let's just say. They were singing the chorus, a Chris Tomlin chorus. <laughs> the Chris Tomlin song, singing a chorus. And, you know, there's a moment in, in singing. I don't know if you realize, but, you know, in worship songs, there's a moment where you feel that this is the, it. This is the climax. And then Jesus stands up at the climax and yells out, Come to me. I am the one who will give you living water. The very living water that you were expecting. Verse 40. When they heard these words, Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. After Jesus' proclamation, you know, standing up there, you would think that everyone, everyone will come to Jesus and believe, right? With all that Jesus did and said, and how everything lined up with the festival and signs pointing to the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Yet, there were many who were still caught up with Jesus' credentials and questioned whether Jesus was legit. Some, like the Pharisees and teachers of the law, wanted to discredit and kill Jesus because Jesus pointed out their deepest, darkest secrets and sin. While others, well, they had expectations already of who this Christ was. Remember the Samaritan woman with the Teheb? Well, these people had some expectations as well. They had Captain America expectations, thinking that this Christ would be this soldier, this wonderful king who would ride into royally into Jerusalem and defeat the Romans and free them with assemble his avengers, right? And free them from the tyranny of Thanos, who is, happens to be Roman, Romans, the Romans. So they had their expectations of who Christ was supposed to be. And unfortunately, they said, Jesus didn't fit their expected credentials. Let's move on. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. In in other words, They're saying, this crowd, they're idiots. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, remember Nicodemus in chapter 3, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So shut up. (laughs) 
Doesn't the officer's reaction remind you of how the lawyer, judge, and the people in the courtroom responded when Marissa Tomei spoke with authority? Right? The people in the courtroom, they were amazed, shocked, and they needed time to dwell on it, right? And same as the officers. When the officers heard Jesus spoke with authority, he spoke what is correct and even more. Now, this man, they say, is, doesn't have the credentials that we came to expect, but he knows more. Why? So they too, being well-educated, you know, they're not just dumb guards, okay? These guys are from the line of Levites. So they're there to guard the temple and they know their Bible. So they're like the theology cops, okay? Protecting the temple from false teachings. They too were well-educated and they were guardians of the temple. So when they heard Jesus spoke and heard him speak with authority, but not only with authority, but they were, it was right and correct. And even more so, like Jesus provided the essence of those words, they needed time to think. And so the officers couldn't arrest Jesus or take him in because, hey, they're stunned. Just like the people in the movie scene. They need a timeout and think this through as suggested later on by Nicodemus. Now, we can see how prideful the Pharisees and teachers were when they met the officers. Look how they compared themselves to the crowd. They were so proud that they knew the law, i.e. that they had it in their possession, that they neglected to actually do the law and keep it. If only they obeyed the law, which was impossible by the way, they would know that the law pointed to Jesus because the law was impossible to keep. If they only pursued God's will, they would know that it's only by God's grace and mercy that they can pursue it. And God's grace and mercy is embodied in who? Jesus. They were so entrenched in judging Jesus by their own credentials, prideful in believing that their credentials were superior, they completely rejected the very person they were eagerly waiting for, God and his gift of living water. Instead, they even threw their rationalism out the door when they took it out on Nicodemus, right? They lost it. They completely lost it. Their pride overtook them. Their seeking of glory overtook them. And therefore, they even blasted Nicodemus to get lost. So let's summarize. <clears throat> There's a lot to take in here. First, Jesus entered into the biggest feast on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles where in church today, we would be probably equating that to the best worship service ever, celebrating God's provision and eagerly expecting God's gift of living water. Oh, by the way, not just a worship service, it's also a barbecue, right? It's a humongous barbecue. Yet majority of the Jews, including the Pharisees and teachers of the law had in their mind of how God will give this gift. They had expectations of how this will come about. And not just that, they had agendas. Every person, whether it be Pharisees, whether it be the temp, no, temple leaders, the teachers of the law, and even the crowd, like Jesus' brothers, they all had their own agendas when they came in. So when they saw Jesus, they just didn't know who he was because of their agenda and because of their preconceptions of who their Christ should look like. They basically put God in a box. They basically put God and his delivering of, a, of living water in a box in their own definition and not willing to submit to God's will. So when Jesus identified their deepest, darkest sin or their agendas and the truth about their agendas, 
The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and even the crowd went further in trying to discredit Jesus to the point of wanting to kill him. By doing so, they completely missed out on God's gift and in fact, they completely lost their status as God's children. God rejected them. God gave them the verdict through Jesus saying, even if you look for me, I will not be there anymore. Now, let's bring it back today. Or let's bring it forward to today. How do we see Jesus today? Do we see Jesus as a credible uh, figure, like God himself? Or do we see him as uncredible? See, ask ourselves, do we put Jesus in a box as well, just like the Jews in this chapter, to keep him away from our deepest, darkest areas in our hearts and just put him in this box where the only time we see him would be probably Sundays and Easter and Christmas. That basically we are discrediting Jesus' claim as God. That we would rather see Jesus as just our friend and our divine butler. You see where I'm getting at? That he is not really God himself, but our Jesus of the day. Sundays, Easter and Christmas, and whenever we need him, we'll call him. Or maybe give it, think about it as some other thing. I wonder, do we expect Jesus to do things the way we want him to do things? Do we have things that we want Jesus to fulfill before we see him as credible? You know, like I have these wonderful plans in my career. I have this plans for my family. Jesus, if it comes through, if you pull through with those, then you are my God. See, that's questioning Jesus' credibility as well, right? We're testing him. We're trying to see whether he's credible and worth, and we're judging him by our own credentials, whether he's credible, reliable, and believable. Now, here's the thing. If we do, we're completely missing the point, and we're all likely missing out on the gift of living waters. Jesus does not need to show his credibility to us. Jesus does not need to show his credentials to us. He's already done this all on the cross. See, in chapter 8, he would go on to tell the Pharisees and the temple leaders and, uh, and everybody else, and including his disciples, that when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will finally know who I am and what my purpose is and who I am and who has sent me and my Father. Which is, means that to tell us, you and I, Jesus is does not need to have any more credentials. Jesus does not need to show any credentials to us or, or needs any credibility from us because he already done it. He has done it on the cross and he rose from the dead. He's God, full stop, no questions asked. And so there's no reason to discredit Jesus. See, we may know all the Bible verses in the songs. We may know all the theological doctrines, but if we do not acknowledge that Jesus is God and submit our lives to Jesus and believe in him and follow his ways. If we would rather just box him in with our own agendas, with our own definitions and preconceptions that we're telling Jesus that, Hey, if you do not fulfill this stuff that I expect, you're not my Jesus and you're not God. Then we are completely missing the point and missing out on receiving these living waters that he has for us. The Holy spirit, the very spirit that gives us eternal life, that gives us the seal that we are God's children and that we will be with him in his presence rather than dead.
and perish. We cannot know Jesus and receive his living water without submitting to him and believe him. And by the way, to believe him is to trust and obey him. Trust and obey Jesus. Jesus has already proved proved himself that he's credible. He does not need our credentials. He does not need to meet our expectations. For he is God. He has shown it on the cross. He has shown it through his death and resurrection. He is God, the great I am. That's the only credential we need. Amen.